Welcome back to the BT Focus podcast. Another day passed and another section down on the RBT task list as we begin section C, skill acquisition programs. And truly, what is life but a series of skill acquisition programs? One that we come by either incidentally or in a more structured sense, programmatically and intentionally. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today with our very favorite guest hosts, Dan and Logan. And with that, team, take it away. Welcome to the RBT mini-series presented by the BT Focus podcast. As we walk you step-by-step through the second edition RBT task list on your path to certification and elevating your practice. Welcome back to the BT Focus podcast. I am Dan the Man, and I am joined again by... Logan, back again. Yeah, we are back again. And honestly, Logan, um, I think we might have a problem. Uh, I thought you were supposed to give back the reins to Brian to this podcast. Wait, I thought you were supposed to. Wasn't that your job? Okay, so I think this confusion essentially has given us again an opportunity to take control. Um, I think we'll just take it, you know, like we won't say anything. I I won't mention it if you don't mention it. Right, yeah, I think think we're good to just keep going. (laughs) Awesome, we'll we'll just go on another escapade here. Because, yeah, I mean, honestly, Brian, like, he'll he'll eventually get it, right? But in this situation for you and I, let's enjoy this moment. And let's talk a little bit more about going through the RBT task list here. We're looking at C1 and C2 today. This is a very interesting component of that task list, just because we're looking at skill acquisition plans. Now, I always think of life in general as a skill acquisition plan on a daily basis, and overall we're consistently acquiring skills. Um, And I always use the example of when you're born and you're a child, life seems to be pretty easy. And then as you grow up, it gets pretty complicated. But when we're looking at these skill acquisition plans, it's kind of the opposite there. So when you're young, you're acquiring a lot of new skills. And as you go through high school and as you go through college, you're getting a lot of these skills in your belt. And then when you become an adult, you are still learning. But of course, they're not as big hurdles as when you were younger. Um, and for me, like, I always equate these skill acquisitions as an adult to the emotions of apprehension and frustration annoyance, impatience, anger. Um, And we see these things pop up sometimes on a daily basis and we can't control them. And so we get all those emotions. For me personally, if I have a flat tire and I need to change the tire on the side of the highway, holy cow, it's a skill acquisition that I know. Is it a skill acquisition that has been maintained? Probably not the best. (laughs) So I'll be standing out there with my little tire iron being like, okay, Life, somebody come by and help me. (laughs) What about you, Logan? Are there any skill acquisitions that you can think of as an adult that would just kind of put you in this this mood? I think just, you know, moving out of your parents' house, learning how to be an adult, there's all kinds of skill acquisitions you have to kind of jump into with like handling money and making sure if something isn't working around the house, 
in my case, I get to call the maintenance person. So luckily, I don't have to <laughs> too much there. But um, just, yeah, lots of new skills that go into adulting and having your own place and everything. Agreed. And we usually see them in transition moments. Um, and I was thinking about this as well. I mean, as humans, we like to be comfortable. We like to think that we know what's going on around us and we can control the situations. But of course, as an adult, we do go through these big transition moments, such as moving out of the home, such as starting a new job. And those will come with a lot of new skill acquisitions. Good example, though. Honestly, I think doing stuff around the house can be really complicated uh, if your dishwasher breaks or um, sometimes if you're essentially trying to turn on the air conditioner, it doesn't turn on. Um, and you're like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's more than one button that I have to push here. <laughs> or if you're trying to figure out a new control for a remote, there's there's a lot of new scale acquisitions that we have as an adult. Um, and it's important for us to understand specifically with ABA what these skill acquisitions plans are. So let's kind of, let's kind of dive in here into C1. And we'll just give a basic of what a skill acquisition plan is. Specifically, it's a written plan that provides fr framework for task behavior or adaptive behavior through acquisition and the application of the student learning this plan, or in our situation, the client learning this plan. We really base the skill acquisition being learned through an ABC contingency. Now, that ABC contingency can be through a DTT or it can also be through an NET. The difference between those is that the DTT it's going to be antecedent controlled and through the NET, we're waiting for that environment to present that antecedent. Um, and as I was going through this, this specific task, there was a lot of examples that could come up to me for, for personal examples. And I think we already talked about a couple of them. Um, and I, I want to talk about a little bit more just because uh, when I had, when I first got out of college and I was starting this, this job here um, for Centria Healthcare, it was something that was really challenging for me um, because it was something new. It was something different. So I had to adapt to it. I had to acclimate to it. I had to prepare myself for it. And I think that the, the whole process would have been a little bit easier if I had broken down the acquisition here, right? If I had a plan specifically, which is kind of what we want when we're walking into the home and we're working with a client. We really want to develop this acquisition plan for the client. And Logan, you had already mentioned that like moving out of the home is something that that can essentially elicit a lot of acquisition. So if we were to break this down, what do you think we would do first for an acquisition plan? I think the very first step would be deciding what skill you're wanting to target, um, which skill you're wanting to increase or help the client learn to have that in their repertoire. Exactly. And if there is a new skill that you could tact today that you want to learn, what would that be? Hmm. Let's see. <laughs> a new skill. Um, maybe let's say how to sew. I am really not good at sewing at all. <laughs> how to sew? <gasps> so do you, do you know the basics? I took two years of homework in middle school, and I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this, this ties in very closely to the skill that I wanted to learn as well, which was Spanish. Um, and I took two years of Spanish as well in high school and in college, and still, like, I don't know 
like the basic, like I know the basics, but I, I can't speak it fluently. Right. But I agree with you. I'm actually learning how to sew as well on my end. And I learned a really cool trick that I'll have to show you later where you, it, you can tie the knot right before you start sewing. And for me, the biggest, that was probably one of the biggest challenges is actually just getting that knot at the end of the string, right? Because right. um, I would be sitting there trying to tie it like a shoelace. Uh, and then I would finish sewing and I try to tie it like a shoelace. And anybody that's an expert sewer would just look at me like, you don't know what you're doing, bro. Just, just, <laughs> just stop now. So yeah, like targeting the skill, you're right on there. Like, why are we wanting to teach this skill as well as something that we would identify first? So we look for that program name and we look for the rationale behind why, we, why we're designing this skill acquisition, why we want to implement this program. Um, so after that, what we want to look at is the SD. So following this, the program name and the rationale, we're looking at the discriminative stimulus. And what is a discriminative stimulus? Give me an example or the definition. What do you think? So a discriminative stimulus um, signals the opportunity for reinforcement. So a lot of times with our skill acquisition plans, I kind of equate it to like the instruction that the technician is given or giving. So with our examples, maybe the SD would be let's sew, or for you, let's practice Spanish. Um, some, <laughs> some kind of instruction where the learner knows that, okay, if I do this skill after hearing that SD, I'm likely going to get reinforcement. Spot on. Following that, what's the next step? What do we do after finding that SD in the discriminative stimulus? I think the next thing I would want to know is what to do if the client doesn't respond correctly. So having the prompt hierarchy or error correction procedure listed out, um, whether we're going least to most prompting or trial and error or most to least errorless teaching. Um, just so in the case of an incorrect response, we know how to correct that so that eventually we are getting more correct responding. And have you identified how you like to learn? Do you like to learn least to most or most to least? <laughs> I think... I personally think I would like to learn most to least, <laughs> but I think it's the opposite for a lot of our clients. Um, so least to most kind of gives the client more opportunity to be independent, just building up those prompts if they need them. And then most to least, you kind of start with that most intrusive prompt and then slowly fade that off, which... I don't know. I'm the kind of person, if I make an error, I get frustrated very quickly. So I think for me, I like that most to least learning. That way, there's not really any chance to make an error and then you just slowly fade those prompts. But sometimes that can lead to prompt dependency with our clients. So you really have to be careful with that most to least prompting. And I am in the same boat as you. I like to learn most to least. I mean, honestly, if I don't know something, I'm Googling it. Right. I'm literally going to YouTube, I'm going to TikTok, I'm going to <laughs> Safari, anywhere I can find to prompt myself to the most least. Um, and I think a lot of people utilize that as well, just because like, let show me the final product or show me that end so that I can learn backwards in the situation. So, or teach me the, how to do it full on at the beginning with full prompts and then fade those full prompts. And I think you identified it correctly. When we are working with our clients, we are looking at that least to most. And the importance there is that when we're working on the least to most, we're doing DTT the majority of the time. And so we want to make sure that we 
do not give that form of dependency. And working with clients throughout this, I mean, especially when you start teaching that expressive language, I would have clients just straight up ask me um, or straight up prompt me to give them the most to least instead of the least to most. And I'm like, all right, dude, I see what you're doing. <laughs> all right, I see what you're doing. Let, let's, let's try to figure this out on our own. Uh, so I agree with you. I think that I also enjoy most to least. And if I'm being taught least to most, I'm going to express his emotions of frustration, apprehension, sometimes anger. So it's really great that we do teach our clients through least to most in this prompting hierarchy because we do give them that opportunity to be the most independent. And we like that feeling as well. We like to be independent. We like when we've learned a new skill acquisition, like sewing or speaking Spanish, and we can use it independently without requiring someone to prompt us or without requiring to go to YouTube. Uh, and the little trick that I'll show you once we finish our prompting with the sewing is something that I actually learned on YouTube. <laughs> and I had to watch the video the first time and I was like, oh yeah, I got this. A week later, I was like, oh, I need to sew something again. Ooh, I totally forget how, to, how I'm supposed to put the needle. So I was like, all right, go back to the YouTube video, watch it again. I had to watch the YouTube video twice and then I had it. Uh, and I have it right now. So for me, my acquisition uh, was probably slower <laughs> than most people because <laughs> they're like, okay, you're just putting the string in the needle. It's like two weeks here. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like for me, I was like, at least I got it right. The point here is we're getting those results. So after that prompting hierarchy, we're going to look at some prompt fading as well, which we've kind of talked about just because if we are using that most to least, we're really going to condition our clients or the individuals that we work with to, to expect that prompt. And we don't want them to become prompt dependent because for me, Logan, if you were to come to my house every time I need to sew and you were to put the string into the needle for me and then tell me how to tie the knot at the beginning, every single time I would probably become prompt dependent on you. And then whenever I'd go get the sewing stuff because I needed to sew, I'd be like, Logan, hmm. I should probably call her. She needs to come help me. <laughs> so we want to make sure that we're not falling victim to that. Uh, it's very easy. So when you are using that least to most, this kind of helps you in that situation. You avoid this prompt dependency. But also, when you're using least to most, you want to make sure that you're prompt fading because we are still offering prompts in the least to most. Following that prompt fading, what, what, what is the next step? What are we looking at? Um, I think the next step would be the program consequences. So what to do if the client has a correct response, which in most cases is providing some kind of stimulus reinforcer. Um, it's important that the definition of a correct response is included in that as well. So I know when we have an official correct response, when I can provide that reinforcer. And then again, if it's an incorrect response, how we would prompt fade, error correction. Um, I think also knowing the schedule of reinforcement is really important. A lot of times with brand new skills, we start on a continuous schedule of reinforcement. We reinforce every single response until that skill is a little bit stronger. And then we can slowly start to fade that schedule of reinforcement by maybe requiring two or three correct responses and then reinforcement and then on average three to four correct responses and reinforcement. So just building up that criteria. 
And then also the mastery criteria, when the client has officially learned that skill, when we can move into more of a maintenance schedule with that program. So in your spot on here, uh, we want to make sure that we are following all of those consequences, uh, specifically following the, the prompt fading and the prompt hierarchy. We want to make sure that they're being maintained. So we want to look at also generalizing them. So the schedule of reinforcement is really important. And at the beginning of this podcast, I had asked you about a new skill that you'd like to learn. But can you apply a skill that you have learned now to this scenario through these programmed consequences? When we're looking at a stimulus reinforcer for correct response, we're looking at that prompting error correction for incorrect responses, a schedule of reinforcement, and then a mastery of criteria. Can you think of a skill that you've learned new right now? Um, I'm thinking of when I learned how to make my mom's cheesecake recipe. Mm -hmm. uh, so originally, she, um, you know, gave me the instructions. I made it. First time I made it, I had one less egg than I was supposed to. So <laughs> very correction there. Um, and then, you know, I made it a second time, made it correctly, got the reinforcement of that really yummy cheesecake and, uh, Made it third or fourth time. I've maintained that. So that would be a skill that embodies this acquisition plan and those program consequences. I think it would as well. And how many times did it take you to master it? What do you think? I think it was just that first time with one less egg. And then after that, I learned my lesson. And so I guess the trial to criterion would be two trials. The first trial I messed up, the second trial I got it. So... Man, honestly, just hearing your stories, I feel like you acquire skills faster than me. <laughs> and I, I, I'm identifying something right now because my example in this situation would be learning how to drift in Mario Kart on my phone. And I think that when I learn a new skill, it takes me exactly two weeks. <laughs> so with anything and everything, I know it's going to take me two weeks to learn this. Uh, because when I, was when I was learning how to drift in Mario Kart, it's pretty complicated on my phone. Oh, it was complicated to me. It took me about two weeks. <laughs> and uh, now reinforcing for you would be the taste of that cheesecake, right? Like it's nice and soft, has a good flavor. Um, if you miss an egg, that definitely might take off the consist consistency of that cheesecake at the end. And for me, learning how to drift in Mario Kart, what was reinforcing there is that I could place higher when I would be in a ranked cup or just the satisfaction of seeing myself drift around a corner was absolutely amazing. So for, for me as being like drifting around the corner, making sure that I'm getting a high place and a ranked score, that's reinforcing for me. I prompted myself through it by, you know it, watching a YouTube video. Uh, and so for, for me, I feel like I my most to least learning is through YouTube. And also it takes me a little bit longer than you. I mean, it seems like, you know, you have a more quick way of learning skills as well as I think that you have a better plan when it comes to skill acquisition. For me, I, I, I watch a video and I think I should actually be writing things down. So yeah, it's important that in these situations, we also look at how our client is learning because skill acquisition comes different for everybody. It's not the same thing. So thinking about and observing your client can help you a lot when teaching this skill acquisition plan. Now, the next step we're going to look at is the data collection. So data, 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 super important. And in this situation, data can be turned into information. 
So the data that we're wanting you to collect is this incorrect or correct response. We also want you to look for the specific objects or events that are happening because we're going to be comparing those to other objects and events. And those objects and events need to be numbered. I have a meme here. Essentially, it's the keep calm queen meme. And it's keep calm and take baseline data because we wanna make sure that we're taking that frequency, the duration, the percentage is correct. And all this will be put into your iPad. Data is vitally important when it comes to this skill acquisition plan. And it's vitally important when it comes to assessments, when it comes to progression, when it comes to the majority of things that we're dealing with our client. So it's important that you do take that data collection. The next step would be maintenance and a generalization plan. So why would that be important here? Why are we looking at maintenance and a generalization plan? Well, with maintenance, we want to ensure that, you know, a month after this acquisition program has been mastered, the client's still able to do the skill. Are they able to do it two months later, a year later? So we want to make sure that when we're teaching these skills, it's not just something that's going to disappear right after the program is finished. We want to make sure the client's able to do these throughout the rest of their life. And then with generalization, we want to make sure the client is able to have this skill in different environments with different people using different stimuli. So it's great if they can do the skill in one context with one person, but it's more helpful in the like big picture if they're able to generalize across all of these different concepts. Very well said. And it's vitally important for us as well. In your iPad, you'll be seeing a lot of those maintenance trials pop up. And that's why um, it's important for us to make sure that we're running those on a daily basis because we do want to maintain the programs that we're teaching. These skill acquisitions do need to remain maintained. They do need to be generalized. and. For me specifically, uh, I had my little table set up in the home with my clients and I'd be working at that table. We'd mostly be doing DTT. Everything would be going to plan. I was very happy. And then we'd take a walk to the park and I would try to apply and run those programs and nothing. And I was like, okay, so this means that I need to take us back to square one and I need to work on generalization with the most basic programs that we had started with. And this is because if, if my client is not generalizing a specific program to different settings, events, people, then probably you've advanced enough or maybe you have advanced enough to the programs that those programs may be harder to generalize. Make sure that you're always referring back to your supervising clinician regarding this as well. And you're taking notes in the iPad that, hey, this situation happened. I noticed that my client was not generalizing the programs that I was teaching for today. I applied them here. Uh, I had another individual come in and try to apply them, say a parent or guardian, and it wasn't happening. Your supervising clinician will come in and write a plan for that, and then you'll start to work on generalization. I think a lot of the times we do kind of miss this aspect when it comes to applying the programs because we get them acquired in one location or for one person and we're happy and we're moving on. But it's important for us to make sure that we're checking on that maintenance, we're checking on that generalization, because those are valuable skills to have when a client moves on to first grade, second grade, college, whatever it might be into adulthood. So very well said here as well, Logan. Now, just to wrap us up here at the bottom, I'm gonna go through some tips for following up a skill acquisition plan, and that'll end us for C1, and we'll move on to C2. 
So okay. some tips here, make sure that you read through the plan thoroughly before implementing it with the client. Now, who makes that plan? The supervising clinician. So typically you... a BCBA could be a BCABA, BC, um, whoever is overseeing that written treatment plan with the client. So should you also ask them if you have any questions for clarification? Definitely. They are the ones who are writing these, so they will definitely be able to provide clarification, additional training if you need it. And what else should you ask them? Um, with that training, so you could ask for potential models, practice opportunities to ensure that you're running the program correctly. Um, practice always gets perfect, so definitely um, asking for those opportunities and getting feedback will be helpful. And for me, the biggest help, and this is our last tip for today, was to ensure that all materials for implementation are available before starting with the client. I'm a very visual and kinesthetic learner. So I need to set out all of my materials and I need to set them out in order. Sometimes I'd even number them so I knew where I was going. So it's important for us to make sure that we do have a plan in place for implementing a skill acquisition plan. So, now at the bottom, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through some questions and then we're gonna touch C2 because C2 really does wrap us up. It prepares us for the session, um, specifically implementing this skill acquisition plan. So we'll go back and forth. Uh, I'll ask you two questions on this one, Logan, and then you can ask me two questions on the next one, okay? Okay, sounds so, good. The first question I'm gonna ask you is, you have finished reading your client's newest skill acquisition plan but you're still not really sure how you should be implementing specifically the program that is outlined. What steps should you take to make sure that the implementation is correct? I'm gonna give you four options, A, B, C, and D. So A, should you ask the BCBA clarification questions? B, should you ask for modeling from your BCBA? C, should you ask for practice opportunities with feedback from your BCBA? Or D, should you ask all of them? I'm gonna go with all of them. I think clarification questions, modeling, and practice opportunities would all be beneficial to help understand that specific program. And that's another ding, 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 ding. You know what, I'm just gonna get a bell. I'm just gonna get a bell on my end and I'll put <laughs> ding, 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 or that button. Have you seen that button at Office Depot where it's like, Wow, or <laughs> nice job. <laughs> we need some sound effects going on here. It kind of breaks like the monotony, but you are right. Nice job. We do really want to ask all of those questions. All right, so the second question, which types of behaviors are targeted when we're looking at a skill acquisition plan? Are these maladaptive behaviors, self-injurious behaviors, or adaptive behaviors? I'm going to go with adaptive behaviors. Usually with um, maladaptive or self-injurious behavior, that would be something targeted with the behavior intervention plan. Whereas with skill acquisition, we are increasing those adaptive behaviors. All right, here's my button. Wow, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> You're correct there. We are looking at that adaptive behavior. All right, so that brings us to the end of C1, and we're moving on to C2, which kind of sums up exactly what we just talked about in C1. And this is preparing for the session as required by specifically the skill acquisition plans.
Thank you for joining us for this special RBT mini-series edition of the BT Focus podcast. We look forward to joining you next time as we continue journeying through the second edition RBT task list to help you elevate your practice and learn more about the science of applied behavior analysis.